Hello there and welcome to another episode of An Irish Man Abroad with me, Jarlath Regan. Well, Mark Horgan is a member of the second captain's team and the co-producer and writer of the Where Is George Gibney podcast, a podcast that took the world by storm. For those of you that haven't heard it, and there can't be many by now, it tells the story of a disgraced Irish swimming coach who evaded justice when it emerged that he had been sexually abusing the young swimmers in his care across a number of decades. More than that, though, it gave a voice to those victims who were never given their day in court. Many, many more came forward after the airing of the first eight episodes of this podcast. And a new police investigation is in progress as a direct result of Mark's work. They don't need me to say it, but what Mark and Kieran Cassidy created in Where is George Gibney? is truly extraordinary. We get to talk about how it came about here in great detail and in the later stages of the conversation we hear more about Gibney himself, Mark's journey to track him down, the legend that is Gary O'Toole, the next project for Mark and lots, lots more. There's almost an hour extra in the conversation. That can all be heard in full over on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Like Second Captains, our show can't go on without our members. So to become one for a fiver is easy. And in return, you'll get to hear this conversation in full. Hundreds of episodes from our archive, our weekly America podcast with Marion McKeown and lots, lots more. This week, members also got free admission to our online comedy club with Ardell O'Hanlon, which takes place every Friday night in support of frontline charities and workers. Return of the crack. Dot com to get tickets for next week's show with Andrew Maxwell, Lloyd Griffith and Shappy Corsandi. My chosen charity partner is Jigsaw.ie. Jigsaw are a youth mental health charity who, if you have a young person in your life, have them check it out or you check it out. Go to Jigsaw.ie. I guarantee you they'll be able to help you or the people in your life in some way, shape or form with their online content and services. They are an incredible charity that I'm really proud to support. That's Jigsaw.ie, the chosen charity partner of an Irishman Abroad podcast. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Mark Hogan, it's brilliant to have you on Irish Man Abroad, especially after the year you've had. I mean, it must feel a little bit, a little bit of a relief, as we said before we came on air, to kind of have this done and now be moving back into sports and covering sports. Is there a little bit of Neil Armstrong to that? 
thanks for having me, Jarlath, for a start. It's it's uh, it's lovely to be to be on the show. Uh, I've listened to it for so many years, so it's great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, it's it's a funny feeling right now. It's actually, you know, I've spent so much of my career just talking about um, and broadcasting about sport and kind of took it for granted sometimes. And I feel uh, at the moment now, after kind of three years working on the Gibney project, it's such a nice break to be back in it for a while and to kind of recognize that it's such an escape from, you know, everything that's happening at the moment in the, around the world and that this kind of, you know, your work day can kind of be based around quite a lot of positivity and something mm. that you're really enjoying and look forward to and isn't of, you know, a huge amount of importance. <laughs> it's actually <laughs> a lovely release. And it like my girlfriend is, is a journalist as well and she works in news. And, you know, I can it's it's hard working on you know covid related stories on a constant basis when also on your you know your time like your time off away from work you tend to be <laughs> obviously thinking about covid and about you know when my parents are going to get vaccinated and you know you know why is it taking so long with the vaccinations in ireland and all it's just generally as much as you try for it not to be part of your conversation it is so Mm. for her when that's her working day as well it's hard whereas you know today we were talking about the ireland italy match and talking about my cat as the attacks coach and what's going wrong and it's just you know it doesn't really matter uh and it's it's good fun and it's it is quite nice to be back on this, you know, certainly yeah. back in it for a little while anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think about the Michael Parkinson quote that you guys use in one of your montages about uh, there's a world outside of these things. And that's what sport reminds us of. The thing that I noticed in preparing for this, Mark, was I, I, I couldn't find a lot of y- you and your experience in making Where is George Gibney? And I'm sure that that's obviously because you, you know, you, you place the work ahead of everything else. You place the survivors ahead of everything else. But one of the things that I found was you said that it was really hard to switch off from it and that there were times when you closed the laptop and it's still there. It's it's still it's still occupying all of your headspace. Can you talk to me a little bit about that and how maybe maybe probably the sports background didn't help in that way, because when you're doing that with a, say, a sports guest, I know for myself, that's a good thing. You know, it's percolating away. But on this one, you it was probably really important for you that you did close the laptop and f- for a moment have a sus yoga kind of a, a full on that's that I'm not thinking about that now. Yeah, it was. I think there's kind of a few elements here and, you know, I'm sure we might talk about them a little bit later, but the obviously the main point is that the subject matter itself is so dark and so difficult. And, you know, you're speaking to people about some survivors who are speaking about the most difficult things that have ever happened in their lives. And um, they're opening up to you and telling you their stories. And it's difficult for you not to you know, to be able to switch off from that when, when you're, when people are trusting you so much and, mm. and uh, deciding to open up about this to you. And I think that one of the major things was uh, regarding not being able to switch off was just the fact that I'd, I was so concerned about uh, potentially letting the survivors down and the fact that they had chosen and trusted me that I was 
uh, you know, terrified that the end product would be hmm. what they were hoping for and that, um, that I wouldn't represent them the way they felt they should be represented. So there was just, you know, the the idea that I, I just wanted to spend as much time as I possibly could to make this thing right and to cover all of the bases and to make sure that, you know, I was approaching it in the right way and I'd done all the research and all our team had done all the research. Um, so it was like, it was, it was a combination of lots of factors. And it was also that I'd been trusted by my colleagues and the people in the BBC to do this project. So it was just quite a lot of pressure. And it was one of the, things that I think is so important on a project like this is that you have to give it a huge amount of time. So you have to be really prepared to wait for a survivor to say, okay, now the time is right for me. They obviously can't be rushed. Mm. Um, you have to be really careful about the time you approach, um, you know, George Gibney, as well as the survivors and and that the interviewees that you want to get to tell the full uh, story that you you have to give them time to say yes, you know, and not rush it. So basically it also affected your life because, you know, we, Cirque and I couldn't plan anything or I wasn't prepared to plan anything, you know, like holidays back in 2019 <laughs> or 2018 because it was like, I can't run the risk of somebody being prepared to talk at this time and I'm away somewhere, you know? Mm. So, it, and that could even be weekends away or whatever. It was just that for this period in this project I just felt like I had to really you know keep my head in it the whole time so you know there's obviously the the thought in your mind that I want to honor these people and do a good job since they've trusted me and you're obviously wrestling with the idea at times of am I going to hurt them by by talking about this by bringing this up again and that's the whole thing of waiting for them to be ready, right, to, for them to come to you and you to be ready to go, to grab your grab your kit and go. Mm. I, I mean, it's such a big story from that that period in, in the 90s that I remember it. I actually remember the Tribune that that Sunday. I feel like I remember a discussion taking place around survivors and around statutes of limitation, like this was a, a, an item of discussion in my house or I was either hearing it on the radio. But I do remember being the same age as you, uh, being around 13 years old and the question being raised, could someone make an accusation so far in the past that it's now an unreliable accusation? Was that your memory of it or or was it much more of a uh, free and easy childhood in me running around chasing footballs? Yeah, I, to be honest with you, so I was 13 at that time. So just started secondary school. I have no recollection of it at that time at all. The only recollection I have of kind of the abuse cases and swimming were as time went on and there was, uh, you know, Jared Doyle and Derry O'Rourke and, uh, and others when their when their names were being brought up i remember as time went on so that was late 90s kind of into the 2000s that at that point i do i did recognize that you know was the whole country was you know utterly disgusted by swimming in ireland and everything had to change and i, I remember being very clearly that but the gibney case i don't and i have no recollection of it at all at that time 
the first time that I really studied it was when I was working um, for Newstalk and that we we just did a, a piece on us and that would have been with, with Justine McCarthy and it would have been a very broad kind of overview of it. And that could have been back in around 2005 sort of time. Hmm. So... Justine like, I, McCarthy, for the listeners, wrote this incredible book, Deep Deception, Ireland's Swimming Scandals. If people don't know it, it, it was the book on this, right? Yeah, that's right. And Justine was a, a huge help to us. She guided us in loads of different ways in this. And we referred to Deep Deception, you know, constantly um, throughout the whole production process. But it was at that point of forgetting about it was, I think, key as well to you know, the need for this project to happen because, you know, the people of a certain age are absolutely familiar with George Gibney in Ireland. People will remember him on the on TV screens and being this really lauded uh, coach. But I think a lot of people, you know, of my generation, maybe you, it seems to be you, you excluded, uh, Jarla, but lots of people wouldn't have any memory of it um, of that time um, in 93, 94. And I think that the really worrying thing for me was that this story would be entirely forgotten about and Gibney would kind of be thrown in with the likes of Derry O'Rourke and and Jared Doyle and the rest and it would be kind of seen that you know in my mind I was I, I when we came back to it at the uh, in 2018 or 2017 I had misremembered it I actually thought that um, that George Gibney had spent time in jail and I think this is a key thing the amount of time that passes and it gets forgotten about and then the survivors and what the truth is gets forgotten about. So the goal for us and for me was to ensure that more people knew the, knew the truth about George Gibney than ever before. And more people around the world, world uh, knew the truth about George Gibney. So um, that was a key thing because I think a lot of people forgot about it. Well, let me ask you about this because, you know, before we go into it and, you know, I really would like to talk about getting to the place where you decide I'm going to do this because you know that to me is the most fascinating thing about all the conversations that I have on this show is you know the going from nothing to something that that's really kind of what the Irishman Abroad series is about is normal people deciding to do extraordinary things and putting their mind to it and just going to hell with it. I'm, I'm, this is what I'm going to do. You you really are in that category, Mark, like this thing that you took up the baton on after uh, and we'll get to, you know, the work that Second Captains did on at the 25th anniversary episode. Like it is, it's an extraordinary thing uh, that didn't, you didn't need to do in many ways. Like you were happily podcasting away this was a, a leap into the unknown for you. As you say, you're not an investigative journalist. It's it's new territory for you. But I wanted to start, though, with one question about the specifics of it before we delve into, you know, the, the case itself, the man himself and the people that you encountered along the way. For those people that don't know, uh, George Gibney was essentially allowed to leave Ireland after seven swimmers came forward with seven sworn statements and 27 counts or examples of him assaulting them that they brought to the Gardaí and each was took place between 1968 and 1981 and when I say he was allowed to leave it's because they you know they raised this question and 
uh, about the fairness of this uh, retroactively going back and not having the specifics, uh, dates uh, and diaries and documents to back up each each assault, which seems crazy, obviously, in the light of everything that's happened since. But they allowed for a judicial review and he gets a Donnelly visa to go to America. And this is why I say allowed that there's a lot of people that think the other story here is how people in power pulled the strings in such a way to allow this this man to get away. Is there anything in that? Or did you think at the start of this that I'm going to need to look into that? And am I going to be hamstrung by the defamation laws in Ireland? Well, I think the thing was that it was our job to look into all of these elements and to consider them and to understand whether they were part of the bigger picture with Gibney or not, or something that we should report on. To be honest with you, I think that the issue here isn't about whether Gibney got helped by people in in higher positions in Ireland. You know, there's there's always conspiracy theories that are going around that are about whether he was helped by, you know, politicians or judges or or you know whoever these people might be and you've heard those theories yeah i i i just really think that they turn the focus away from what the realities are i think they've always turned the focus away from what i think is the most important thing here which is telling the story stories of the survivors and that their voices are heard and yeah. I think that I think that there that that's, you know, much more significant. I do. Than too. I, I do, too, Mark. But just really quick, though, the people who allowed him to get away are the ones that denied those people their day in court that like the two are not mutually exclusive. That to me, the the denial of those people and their justice and their right to present their case is down to whoever or whatever flaw in the system or whatever group think that went on to allow this man to get away when all of this, like, think about the stack of evidence that's there. Like, who, like, what person employed in the realm of justice could say this is justice? Well, in retrospect, they absolutely couldn't. And it was shown because of the subsequent cases in swimming that it was entirely faulty and their their, uh, judgment wouldn't stand up today. But it was at the point where this was at the very start of, and this isn't obviously Jarlet mm. making excuses for this decision. Mm. Of course not. It's a it's a massive injustice that the whole series and you know my work for three years was based on. But it was also a situation where in Ireland we had no understanding societally or from a judicial perspective on how to deal with historic uh, child sexual abuse, sexual abuse. And the reality is that, of course, it's absurd to consider the fact that. The people will be questioned for not coming forward. And the, the the question that was asked was, well, why wouldn't you come forward? Why would you spend 10 years before you come forward? When obviously we understand now that there's a whole host of reasons why, you know, children don't understand what necessarily would what would happen to them. There are whole loads of psychological problems that people might be going through, you know, trying to process uh, whatever happened to them. The fear you know, the um, the lack of understanding and shame around child sexual abuse. There's a myriad reasons of why people wouldn't come forward. But at that time, the, you know, horrifically, the Irish judicial system, both in the Supreme Court and the High Court, made the call that it will be that Gibney couldn't get a fair trial. Now, that wouldn't happen today. But the the reality is that Irish society was also in a very strange place then as well. 
you know, Irish society, we can see we can see it in even the case of John McLean recently um, regarding people, you know, this guy uh, admitting to counts of child sexual abuse and then still being on to, able to go forward and coach in UCD and mm. coach the Ireland schools team. There was an absurd acceptance in some ways um, of acceptance maybe isn't the right word, but un- unwillingness to push this forward and to ensure that these people don't coach elsewhere. And and that was something that was happening not just in Ireland, but, but um, you know, in lots of countries around the world. But I think that, you know, also just consider now, those people came forward in um, 1994 to the Tribune, which I'm sure you'll want to touch on, but lots of them weren't believed. So even when they came forward and said, gave their sworn affidavits that they had given to the guards that were handed over then to the Sunday Tribune and they talked again to Johnny Morrison about what happened to them, lots of people didn't believe them. So Ireland was in a place there where, uh, you know, they were, these women and men who'd come forward were being questioned. So imagine how that made them feel on top of mm. Gibney evading justice. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I'm talking about you know, when when you're talking that people allowed him to get away, the judicial system was massively flawed, for sure. I don't think it was individuals who made that call. It was, you know, or or a politician or it was a case of, you know, the guards letting him off. The guy applied for a, a Donnelly visa before he went to trial. He got just incredible amounts of luck to be able to get away. And it's a utter shame and it's um something that you know i'm really glad now that people are very much aware of what happened and they're very much aware of the survivors and they in differently to 1994 that they absolutely believe them now yeah i guess uh, that it just it, it kind of rings in my ears that you're writing this wrong for so many people in terms of the expression and communication of their story to give strength to others uh, who may be in similar situations but equally there's a part of me that just thinks systemically that we should be going back and writing that wrong like there's no there's no way that you could perform this poorly in any other job and result in so much pain and heartbreak and suffering and it wouldn't be reviewed that it wouldn't be hauled back if it emerged later on down the road but i i mm. you touched on a couple of things mark like the that i get that that wasn't your your thing here that you weren't trying to get a conviction you weren't trying to get an extradition and you were very careful not to get your work grouped in a kind of a crime podcast in the multitude of uh, serial knockoffs that are kind of voyeuristically trawling through the thing and self-aggrandizing as they go no disrespect well some disrespect intended to the people that are doing that your idea for this was very particular and very uh, tender and sensitive i heard you mention before that at times you and kieran cassidy who also made it with you would take it wouldn't like what you'd heard and would would bin it and have to start again can you talk a little bit about that uh, yeah, I, I, it's so Kieran Cassidy is I, I don't know if people will have heard his work or seen his work, but he's a filmmaker and he's a also a, a, a documentary, a radio documentary maker. And uh, he's done some 
brilliant work. So he's he's done The Last Days of Peter Bergman, which lots of people will know. It's, mm. a, it's a short film. And then he's done a whole a host of Doc on Ones on RT Radio 1, which are um, oftentimes absolutely brilliant uh, documentaries that are kind of usually around an hour long. And uh, Cass has done, he, he had done a one particular radio documentary which was called The Runners, which was based on kids who'd escaped from industrial schools uh, back in the kind of 1950s sort of time. And he told their stories. And I'd heard that and uh, was blown away by it. And I heard it years ago. And just the way he uses compositions and the way he uses different scenes, I, th- I thought he was brilliant. And so so basically, Jar, how, how things had kind of worked was I was, you know, suddenly working with Kieran Cassidy on this project and I'd never really worked with somebody who has his own sort of processes and does things his own way and uh, is kind of very particular about how he does it and I are just by nature of the type of programs that we do uh, whether they're on the radio or tv or podcast they're quick turnaround and um, you know they're kind of something that you'll you put together that week, you'll put out that weekend or whatever, or daily when, when we're doing the, the regular podcast. So it was, uh, we had to find our feet together and try to, you know, to make the podcast sound <laughs> the way the two of us wanted it to sound. And at times, you know, I would, I'm sure Cass will get frustrated with me and that I get frustrated with him. So there was, there was, to be honest, it was just wasn't sounding the way we wanted it to sound. Um, in in what, for quite in a what while. sense, like as in your voiceover, the way it was pieced together, the the music, like just or just overall, this is not the tone we want to strike. Yeah, it was kind of a combination of things, but it was it wasn't so much the tone. It was more just the the pathway, you know, the the very kind of specific like narrative that was going to run through all ten episodes and how they were how they were interconnected how they were laid out, where we were going to use different voices where. And really, the key thing was how we were going to, you know, going back to the survivors and how we were going to, we, the survivors were going to sound and, and things like that. So it was just that it, it was one of these things where it, it wasn't working and it wasn't working as it was approaching deadline time as well. Oh, really? Um, so it was that yeah, late yeah. in, right. Yeah, okay. it was that late. So, you know, it was the, the, the project was delayed because of COVID because we still had some interviews to do that we weren't able to do. And so that that bought us a little bit more time, but kind of towards the end of 2019, we needed to reassess where we were at and step back and kind of just, you know, put it back together again and start editing again. So, um, yeah, it was it was <laughs> like it was difficult, you know, and at times I really wasn't sure whether it was going to be any good. Um, so but it kind of eventually we were able to get it together and and like um, Cass's is a really supremely talented editor so he works some some wonders with it as well so let's get into how as i say we went from nothing to something right you as you say you're very you're not really aware of it the cases the situation as a child uh 25 years later you find yourself working in news talk and there's you know, there's a piece about it. Uh, there's you do this 25th anniversary piece for Second Captains and this gets a monster response. How much of that response now that you have a bit of hindsight and the dust has settled on it made you realise uh, that you might be the person to venture down this path and get some form of uh, 
I don't want to say restorative justice, but just shine a bigger light on this. Just before we did that piece about George Gibney, um, the once-off podcast with Second Captains, we there was a lot of big stories breaking around that time. And I mentioned in the podcast, it was around Larry Nasser, the doctor with US Gymnastics and Barry Bunnell. And we'd also done pieces around Paul Stewart. So there was this kind of culmination of, of these types of stories and abuse in sport that were happening at that one period of time, that kind of a six month period. And so um, that's how Gibney, first of all, came back into our my head. And uh, like I was saying, I'd misremembered a lot of it. So I and there was there was um, a freedom of information case that had just come out at that point, And some of Gibney's documents on his uh, immigration file were out there. So it was kind of a new strand that was just happening at that time. And it was really kind of before that even went public, that podcast went public that we did with, it was with Maureen O'Sullivan, the TD in Ireland, who'd done who, and has done amazing work on George Gibney over the years and trying to keep um, the light shone on it, as well as, as Justine McCarthy, as we, as we mentioned. And I kind of, when I was doing research for that piece, all these elements of the story that I wasn't aware of became apparent. You know, I, I didn't. So there you have it, the first half hour of my conversation with Mark Horgan. Come on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad to hear the next hour of conversation with him. Uh, if you sign up for a fiver a month, you get a little link, you paste that into your podcast app and suddenly it populates with hundreds of episodes with the greatest Irish people ever to have lived. You know how it works. Uh, like Second Captains, we can't go on without the members. It's obviously lovely to give away free podcasts here on iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you're listening to this. But to continue doing what we're doing, we need your support. So come on over to patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad. Brian Connolly's on production. John Marr does extra research and Tina and Mikey make it all possible. I'll be back on Tuesday with Sonia O'Sullivan for the Irishman running abroad and a new episode with Sonia coaching me on how to run 2000 kilometres in 12 months for my chosen charity partner, Jigsaw.ie.